Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome back to another delicious episode of Bad Dad, Rad Dad. Wow, delicious. Mm, before we dive in, um, I want to address a couple things. Our voices might sound a little different today because Kylie is getting over an illness. Yeah. And I was at a industry party uh, award show last night and I had to, I don't have a good voice that cuts through room noise. Like if I'm at a bar or a club or something like that or at an event, there's some people that when they talk, you can just hear them in a loud room. Their voices just cut through. Mine doesn't. I kind of have a lower timbre and I have to really project. So my voice is a little strained today. So you're getting the sultry sounds of Elliot and Kylie. Yeah, today. it's like that episode of Friends. No, <laughs> where Phoebe's sick and she yeah. has the sexy voice. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're getting our sexy voices today. Wow, wow, Um, before we get into stuff, I wanted to talk about something we found out this morning because we've had a lot of conversations on this show about theater etiquette and how it's kind of going down the toilet lately. Uh, specifically in mainstream theaters, i.e., Cineplex here in Canada. Um, so. Our good buddy Tabitha, it was her birthday yesterday as of this recording. Happy birthday, Tabitha. Happy birthday. But uh, we, she was one of our buddies that we mentioned a few episodes back that kind of came out of the woodwork as a John Wick fan. Um, so we were really tickled by that and she wanted to go see John Wick 4. So we were going to go see that with her. I couldn't go um, because I had the award show. But Kylie was going to go and then go have birthday celebrations after the fact. So we picked up some tickets so that Tabitha, Kylie, and a couple other friends could go see it at a Saturday matinee at 1 o'clock at a Cineplex and just have a a ride of a time because John Wick 4 slaps. (sighs) So Kylie got sick. She was unable to go, but Tabitha and her couple buddies still went. And... uh, yeah, she. you asked her how it went, what she thought of the movie, and how it was her birthday. And uh, the story that ensues is very unfortunate and kind of unbelievable, and I'm still kind of seething about it. Yeah. So essentially, 
there's a group of teenagers that came into the theater late. So about 10 to 15 minutes late, the movie had already started and proceeded to like make inappropriate noises, like moaning sounds and like talk really loudly and throwing things um, for the duration of the movie. And other patrons understandably got upset, started yelling at them, which got the teenagers more riled up. And there like ensued a yelling match where I guess some adult men started to threaten that they were going to drag them out of the theater. Um, eventually, the staff came in and checked tickets. And two of the teenagers, I'm assuming, didn't have tickets. They kicked them out. And I guess, according to Tabitha, for about 45 minutes, things were good. Mm-hmm. So I guess those two non-ticket buyers were, were the instigators. But then yeah. they snuck back Gr- in. Great. In a three-hour movie, 45 minutes was okay. Yeah. <clears throat> but then those two stuck back in and everything started up again, including um, targeted throwing of objects at like the one guy who had been like, I'm going to get you guys out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it ended up being so bad that they had to, the staff paused the movie and kicked the entire group out. Yeah. What? And they did give uh, passes to see another movie um, to everyone who was in the theater, but still, what a like it's disgusting like hearing about that experience i I would have felt so uneasy if i were in the theater i would have been so upset um i mean it's easier for me because i've already seen it so i more readily could be like like let's just get out of here but like tabitha and her friends were excited on her birthday on her birthday so having to go through that is really really shitty and the fact that just this whole toxicity created more toxicity within the theater and it just turned into this really disgusting display of disrespect. It it was, it, I'm like I said, I'm seething about it and it it prompted us to you and me to start having a, um, just a conversation about like there needs to be, you said it really well, like there needs to be a reevaluation of bringing in stricter rules around theater etiquette. Yeah. So there's a chain of theaters in the States that I see people, rave about on Letterboxd all the time called Alamo Draft House. And they have several rules that I desperately wish would be implemented in both like our art house theater, Metro, and in these bigger chains like Landmark and Cineplex. Um, there's a couple of rules around like kids and like ages and times that uh, kids three and under and kids six and under can be in the theater, which I, as a, as a childless person, I Love. Really appreciate, but I know that there's like hot debates right now about how people people feel about children. So I'm just gonna step aside <laughs> from that. Um, but they have a no late policy. If you are going to enter the theater late, you don't get to go. They will refund your ticket, and you can go to another showtime. But nobody's allowed into the theater late, and they fa- in fact they encourage everybody to get there 30 minutes ahead of time. First of all, I love that, but I know that you really love that as a teacher who is. Not happy when (laughs) students come in late and have to go get late slips or go to the administrator's office. And it's like, you were late, so you're spending the whole class at the administrator's office. Yeah. um, No nonsense. I love it. And it's also that thing of like, I get that that would be frustrating if it's like the one time you're ever late, but. But it's been kind of nuts. Like we've talked, we've recounted on this show of movies we've gone to where people are showing up like 20 minutes into the movie. It's like, what are you doing here? So I love that. No lates. Um. Because when that's happening, and yes, as a teacher, I especially can speak to this, this, if there's only one person who comes in late and they sneak in really quietly and they sit down, it's pretty okay. But 
if like one person comes in three minutes late and then another person comes in seven minutes late and then another person comes in 15 minutes late, it's just constant disruption. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's really hard to get a flow going when that's happening. And I've noticed that in theaters, right, where, okay, these two people just walked in like a minute late. But now there's like a big group of five people coming in 10 minutes late and they're trying to find their seats and they're turning on their flashlights on their phones to try and figure out what aisle they're in. Mm -hmm. And it's just getting more and more disruptive. And this is when the movie's supposed to be like engaging. Right. Like we're supposed to be zeroing in on it. And that's also something I've noticed. I'm starting to reach a point where I don't want to go to the cineplexes that have um, the like fancy seats that move because you know, we went to a movie this week that as soon as the actual movie started, like the trailers were done, all you hear is yeah, and I'm like, this is the moment where we're supposed to be like zapped into the movie instead I'm distracted by all these people doing that. And I've noticed that like some folks who probably have like some sensory needs will like play with that during the theater, mm-hmm. like or during the theater, during the <laughs> during movie. The movie yeah. Um which like I totally am all here for like people doing the things that they need to do. Like if you need to have a fidget toy or you need to just have like something that you can do with your hands, but that's a little too loud when you've got somebody like me who on the other hand is like very distracted by sensory input. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, love the no late policy, but then Alamo draft house also has a strict no talking, no no cell phones. So if you use your phone or you talk, you are kicked out. No questions asked. Mm hmm. And I, I, I love that it's Cineplex's quote unquote rules are way too loose and there's no repercussions as was evident with the whole John Wick stuff that happened. So, and I just love this. No tolerance for it. Well, One there were re- repercussions. Out. They eventually got kicked out, but it took way too long and it sounds like ruined everybody's experience. Well, yeah. They should have kicked them out and restarted the movie. Yeah. But. I, I'm all here for tougher restrictions on regard. Well, tougher restrictions regarding theater etiquette. So you've heard it here. We are movie tyrants. Yeah, it, and we are willing to be fascists yeah. for the sake of movie etiquette. Call us pee pee poo poo fascists, but god damn it, if I am not just gasping for some better theater etiquette from these people going to movie theaters, feels like every time we go to Cineplex now, it's something. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about some movies. Yeah, let's get into the good stuff. There's a bit of a poopy, pee-pee, poo-poo thing, but it's just like it was so top of mind and because it just we just heard about it. And I'm just like, I want to talk about this because we've talked about it previously on the show. But let's get into the yum, yum, yummy goodness. Um, we kicked off the week with a mystery movie pick from moi. And uh, I chose the 2016 drama Certain Women. Uh, directed by Kelly Reichardt, who is just moving up the ranks of some of my as being one of my favorite directors of all time. <laughs> um, it was written by Kelly as well as uh, Miley Malloy, who did you do you know who this is? No. Miley Malloy is Colin Malloy's sister. Like the Decemberists? Yes. Whoa. I know. They don't that. look anything alike. See, I thought that. But then as soon as I figured that out and looked at pictures of Miley, I was like, oh, I could see. <laughs> and And just to correct you a little bit she wrote the short stories that the film is based on but she wasn't involved in writing the script right yeah thanks for nothing imdb um so i thought that was just super cool what a fun arty family if you haven't listened to the decemberists dive in very good. yeah start with everything is awful because that song <laughs> when you're in a bad mood just like put that on and just everything everything 
Yeah. I don't want to get copyrighted. Yeah, 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 that's fair. Um, so the cast, our main players, are certain women, if you will, are Michelle Williams as Gina, Laura Dern as Laura, Kristen Stewart as Elizabeth, and Lily Gladstone as the rancher. Synopsis is the lives of three women intersect in small town America where each is imperfectly blazing a trail. What do you think of certain women? I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah, this is one where, so the structure of it is like reading a short story collection, which makes sense because that's mm-hmm. where Kelly Reichert was inspired. Um, and it really, the crossover between the three is almost nil. Yes. Right. Like, there's like a slight moment where they might be in the same space. Yeah. But there's no interaction or like culminating connection like in Crash. Yeah. Or something like that where it's like, yeah. oh, all their lives matter to each other. Oh. <laughs> you know, here it's just like here's women in a in a similar landscape going about their lives. And so I could see some people being like that didn't hold my attention to have these like vignetted stories. Mm. But that's my fucking jam, man. Yeah, I love it. I that's I love to read that too. Like I love to read like short vignettes that don't necessarily have this like really complicated cohesive plot. Um, so to see that in film in a way that I haven't actually seen before was really cool. I'll just um, say that if you like Sin City but don't like it here, there's a problem with you. The Sin City. Oh, I guess Sin City does that. Do they not connect up? Again, it's very like slight. It's very oh. subtle. I've not seen Sin City in a really long time because I have a feeling it won't hold up. But yes, um, I did love it as a as a high schooler. As did we all. Sorry, continue. Um. So yeah, I thought that this was like the ultimate slice of life. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. And like and like it's emphasizing the way that like we're in each other's lives without even knowing it, but not in this like big cheesy revelatory like, ooh ah, you know. Yeah, I kind of. Not to get too poetic, but I, I, what I wrote down is it's the way that Kelly Reichardt captures the quietness of life and its different volumes of quietness. Mm. Um, Nice. And thank you. Um, I a plus. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Teach. (laughs) Um, they just they they resonated with me. Each of the stories resonated with me in such different ways. Was there a story for you that? hit you the most or stuck with you the most? Um, I think Michelle Williams and Lily Gladstone's stories impacted me the most in different ways. Mm-hmm. Laura Dern's didn't as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You? Um, the Christian Stewart, Lily Gladstone story. Uh, I've been thinking about it all week. Whoa. It, you're it just, still thinking about it right now? Yeah. Like I, the thing is, it's like that portion of the film is five out of five for me. The whole film, the film as a whole is not five out of five, but I just, I I felt so much in that story. And again, like that level of quietness in that story and especially the Lily Gladstone of it all. Do you feel a sense of emotional connection to that character? I think so. Yeah, that makes sense That's what it is. I, I can be a little bit of an Elizabeth too, I think. Yeah, I get that. I see that. Um, but I just, I think Lily Gladstone as a rancher in this story is perfect. And I just, I I felt like I could relate to, in a way, to the sense of yearning that exists mm-hmm. in that character. Um, 
and just like the inability to articulate feelings mm. and emotions. And that's probably why it hit me so hard. Here's a bit of a tangent and maybe a controversial take. Um, I could give two shits about Martin Scorsese. Um, but you're considering seeing his movie just because she's in it? <laughs> yes, I'm considering seeing Killers of the Flower Moon because um, it's her performance is very buzzy right now. Like there's a lot of... Like people who have seen the movie already? Yeah, there's a lot of discourse that like she crushes it. She might get nominated for an Oscar for it. The movie itself seems very white savory, and I will probably hate it, but I'm sure she'll crush it, and that's the one reason I'd want to see it. But yeah, I I really enjoyed that performance. Yeah, I agree with you too. Like the Laura Dern story didn't hit as hard or like didn't stick with me as much. Michelle Williams. I think I connected to Gina's like desire to try and build something to give her a feeling she's missing. Mm-hmm. And like kind of fuck everything else. She's going to make sure it happens. But yeah. then these like complicated feelings of like, should I be doing that? And then like, no, I deserve that. I don't know. I, I liked it a lot. Um, yeah. We watched this on Criterion and the Criterion channel. Mm -hmm. And what's really cool on Criterion channel, I think we've mentioned this before, is they have some of like the special features that I think would be on the, the physical copies. Mm -hmm. um, so we watched an interview with Reichardt and then we also watched an interview with Malloy and I found them both really... It, they really enhanced my understanding of the film. Mm -hmm. And I also thought like what um, Malloy said about her writing was particularly interesting. And I've actually already taken some of that and like mentioned it to students in my creative writing classes. Um, mm -hmm. She talks a lot about like a moment in her life and holding on to it until she found the right story for it, mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. That was fun to watch those. So I have a question for you, though. Mm -hmm. This movie felt very Albertan to me. Yeah, it did. Did it feel very Albertan to you? It did. Yeah, just from the landscapes and because we're in the mountains, but it's also the prairies. That's that's very Alberta. But like there's something I, I'm, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier of Reichardt just moving up the ranks as being one of my favorite directors of all time. She just the way that she's able to capture landscapes and setting. Yeah. Um, and in that interview, there's little snippets of her location scouting and she yeah. kind of speaks to it a little bit. She talks a lot about sound, like the natural sound of the landscape. Yeah. And it just, she, she's such a pro at it. She's so good at finding these locations that can feel, some of them can feel oppressive. Some of them can feel, um, open and and just kind of like open for opportunity and some of it can it can feel just sad and kind of dour some of it can feel frustrating and the, the fact that she's able to convey those emotions or those tones or like at least pull those out of me just by a shot of a train coming towards camera yeah. in the opening shot of this film uh it's it's really it's really great like it can create this sense of dread just with a simple shot of a landscape. I don't know. She's she's really good. Yeah, we were supposed to go see her new movie, but then I got sick. We'll fit it in. Really excited. And again, th this just adds to not only is Kelly Reichardt really um, making an impression on me, but Michelle Williams as well. I, I've been really enjoying uh, watching her because she's just her and Kelly Reichardt are just 
like this. I'm doing crossed fingers. <laughs> Just big buddies. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love it when directors find muses or like people that they work with quite a bit. Um, again, could give a shit about Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, but <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right, certain women, how did it make you feel? It made me feel a familiar reflection on the loneliness of life. Uh, yeah, that is very accurate. You? It moved me in the way Kelly Reichardt likes to move me. <laughs> so we went somewhere that I've been planning to take us for a while next. I've had it out from the library for over a month. This was such Renewed a pleasant it surprise. a couple times. I picked Shin Godzilla. 2016 action drama horror film. Directed and written by Hidaki Eno, co-directed by uh, Shinji Higuchi. Um, three main players that I've picked out for cast are Hiroki Hasegawa as Yaguchi, Yutaka Takanuchi as Hideki Akasaka, and Satomi Ishihara as Kyoko Ann Patterson. The synopsis, Japan is plunged into chaos upon the appearance of a giant monster. <laughs> what do you think of Shin Godzilla? Uh, first of all, I was so excited that you picked this. Um, as soon as I saw the Toho Productions uh, title card on the screen, I was like, no way. Are we watching Shin Godzilla? Because I took this. Uh, I've been looking forward to watching this for a long time. I took it out from the library. and it, Like over a year ago. Yeah. We just didn't end up watching it. Yeah. So I, I was kind of digging in. Okay. I'll, this is excellent. I really <laughs> liked this movie. Um, so this is regarded as just like a soft reboot of the Godzilla series. It's not a continuation of anything. And I was kind of looking into it after the fact, and it's definitely regarded as an excellent Godzilla film. This is the 29th Godzilla movie. Wow. Which is just, which is nuts. Uh, definitely outranks like James Bond. Um, I was, I'm curious, what's your, we kind of talked about this, uh, not on the show, but I just wanted to bring it up here. What's your history slash relationship with Godzilla or just like giant monster movies? Like, do you love them? Do you hate them? Um, I have like no relationship with Godzilla movies mm-hmm. aside from references in pop culture. Um, you told me that I saw a Godzilla with movie with you in the theater, but I didn't remember that. So <laughs> apparently I've seen one of them, but I've never seen the original. Not a big monster movie fan. No. How come? Two goosebumps. Yeah. We've talked about this before. I'm more, are you afraid of the dark than goosebumps? Like. I'm not even a big fan of um, what's the what's the like Dracula Wolfman? Oh, uh, like the Universal monsters. Yeah, like I'm not a big fan of that either. But I'm not I'm not anti them. Mm-hmm. I think I'm into it more when it's positioned as real, because like, oh, you you want to get me talking about like Chupacabra, Bigfoot, Loch Ness monster? Like I am there. But as soon as it's like, oh, Godzilla in the city, I'm like. Mm. I get that though, like the the mythical creature aspect. It's there's mystery to it. Of like, does it is it does it exist? Does it not exist? Like there is, though it's a monster. You're getting the are you afraid of the but, dark part of it? But that's not even what I what I'm saying. When you take a big monster movie and make it more drama than action, I'm probably going to like it. Mm. Like when it's set, it's a realism, right? As opposed to like just here's a monster destroying the city, right? Um, so like monster movies that I have liked the host. Yeah. Um, that's all I can think of. <laughs> what about, what about this? Yeah, but this was more real. 
Uh, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, this, I liked this it a lot. Did it for I liked you. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have been trying to convince every 30-1 social teacher in my school to teach this. <laughs> really? Yes. I've been running around telling them that this would be a perfect thing to teach because it's about how a government would respond to something like Godzilla. And like it's even like with this idea of foreign policy, like the U.S. coming in and getting involved. I'm like they could study the shit out of this and kids would probably think it was so cool. But also it's like it's like kind of hard because it's so fast. Yeah. I mean, you're you're totally right. I love that you did this. <laughs> well, one teacher, like I might, I might have have them on board, and they said what they would probably do is get the students to watch it once on their own at home, right, and then watch it again in class where they could like pause it and talk about it. Because it's great, yeah. It's a commentary on government, nuclear war, military, world versus personal politics, the and collective versus the individual. Yeah, I mean, all main staples of a. Godzilla, like a classic Godzilla film, but it's interpreted, reinterpreted here very well. And I feel like it's very accessible. Okay, but you like monster movies, right? I do. Yeah. Like I, growing up, I watched a few of the, like, who the hell am I? Like I took, <laughs> took out a couple of the OG uh, See the, the Godzilla moth, movies. What's the moth thing? Mothra? Yeah. Have you seen those? Uh... I mean, in the newer Godzilla movies, Mothra shows up. Like the American ones? Yeah. Oh. Um, so I've seen the those. I loved the Matthew Broderick 90, like 98 Godzilla. Um, I'm sure that it's dumb as shit and not very good, but I loved that as a kid. I got like the toy Godzilla from it. When they came out to theaters, I was always excited to see them, but like the Aaron Taylor Johnson ones weren't that good there's a pretty sick scene in godzilla versus kong that's pretty awesome <laughs> i'm not a big versus movie person that's fair like I, you really like a uh, freddy versus jason alien versus predator yeah yeah you saw batman v superman yeah I, it's just like it's a lot of properties coming together and it's just like yum 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 this but it's not it's like Mortal Kombat. Yeah I, kong versus godzilla i know I, I but like that's the thing is like i Sometimes I just really love turn off your brain stupid stuff, and I me really, too, but just not action oriented. And I've seen like uh, I've seen Pacific Rim, very action or <laughs> oriented, but like Guillermo, you know, is it good? Uh, it is okay. Yeah, don't don't sh- I don't need to see it. I don't I don't know I don't know what it is. It's just like the way that I like miniatures and small stuff. I like when stuff is real big sometimes. I guess the closest I get to really liking a monster movie are alien movies. Because some alien movies can get a bit like War of the Worlds. Right. But like, I I think that that's a, are you an alien fan or an aliens fan in like the alien series? I, feel, I don't know the difference. But I feel like you lean more alien because that's more suspense drama. Which one's which? Uh, alien, Ridley Scott. First Chestburster? One. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No cat. No cat, no girl. There's a cat, but there's not a girl. That's right. Second one is more... The second one's James Cameron. Bill Paxton. Game over, man. I like the first one better. Yeah. but And that makes sense. That checks out. And I think that that's a good barometer of where you are for monster movies. The Aliens is more of a monster movie? Alien, Yeah, Aliens is more action-oriented. I think um, I've only seen that one once. Really? Yeah, and you made me watch it. Probably. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. So that's where we stand. <laughs> um. Okay. So getting into Shin Godzilla, I think Godzilla as a monster is really well done. And they take this aspect that I haven't seen before of evolution. Yeah, it's cool. And kind of gross. Yeah. And kind of scary. Yeah, because we're like, what ends up being Godzilla, you don't really expect to be Godzilla at the beginning of the movie. And we're like, what the hell is this? But the way that it goes is awesome. Um, And <laughs> what I kind of love is that I feel like what makes this really good is that there is this kind of, very, it's very human focused, but there's not a lot of characterization to these humans. Just bureaucrats, man. But the thing is, I feel like for a Godzilla movie, having watched the American versions, which the American ones are all about characterization, but the characters suck ass and I don't give a shit about them. So I was totally fine with there being no characterization. I wouldn't say there's none. Very little. I don't know that I'd agree with that either. Tell me. I feel like Yaguchi is pretty strongly characterized. Yeah. But like not to the degree that they go with the American movies. I, I mean, feel. I feel like we have an understanding of his motives, his personality, but we don't necessarily know anything else except for like how that applies in this current situation. There's nothing beyond that. Yeah, yes. So it's a more slice of life. Yes. and But, but I, I think it's unfair to the film to say there's no or very little characterization because I cared about a lot of the characters. That's that's fair. I'll walk back what I said. But I do stand by that the the amount of characterization that they choose to do with these characters as opposed to Aaron Taylor Johnson, Elizabeth Olsen, like I don't give a shit about their backstories. Just get me back to the monster stuff and them dealing with the monster stuff. I don't yeah. care. I don't care that they're they're adopted and need to get back together and all of this, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't even know if that's the story. I but think like, you're thinking of Marvel there. <laughs> <laughs> um and this is uh, this is sh- I, another thing I felt while watching this is that it's shot in such a striking way. And when I was doing a little bit of looking into this, I guess the filmmakers come from an anime background. Okay. So they they kind of know how to do overemphasized compositions and executions of the shots. And I, I felt that. Um, and it just highlighted the how kinetic and how um sometimes chaotic the situation was and i really yeah, enjoyed so fast. that the director um made the actors like talk faster than usual and if they didn't talk fast enough he dumped the shot <laughs> oh man because it's like and he said he used social network as a reference point mm, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. For, like how he wanted them to speak um very sorkin so fast I know I was kind of like, what if West Wing met Godzilla, even though I've never seen West Wing? But I'm like, I think your mom would like this movie. Yeah. Not yeah. the subtitled part of it, maybe, but. Um, yeah, that's like my one nitpick is that um, we watched the Japanese version, but um, subtitled in English. And my nitpick is that sometimes. I was overwhelmed by the amount of text on the screen because they wanted to supply you with all the information of whoever was speaking on screen, uh, whatever location was on screen at that time, they gave you the name of it. Um, so that subtitle, that information of the person or the place is at the top of the screen. And then what the person is saying is subtitled on the bottom. Okay, two points though. 
Yeah. This movie is not for us. Like I, I read that Hideaki Anno wanted to make a, mo- a Godzilla movie for Japanese people. So he's not trying like, and like, that's awesome. This isn't some bullshit. Let's try it. Make sure it does well in international markets. So they don't care that we're going to have to read two subtitles because if you're in Japan, you don't have to. Right. Like you just know. Because you can speak Japanese. So you don't have subtitling on the bottom of the screen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie is not for us. So to say it's a nitpick. It's like, yeah, but this movie wasn't made for us. So it is what it is. Um, And two, I also think there's a degree to which that's purposefully there because we're meant to feel overwhelmed by the bureaucracy and the speed and the like how fast communication is forced to happen and and how little time there is for emotion or like thought um so i think in moments where you couldn't take it all in that's actually just adding to what the film wants you to feel yeah i get that i guess i'm just a little disappointed that i couldn't take it all in Watch I, it a second time, man. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm just I'll watch it a second time and only look at the stuff on the top of the screen this time. Because I was hearing um, some people that were saying that when they saw it in the theater, there were Japanese subtitles and then English ones in yellow over top of the white Japanese subtitles. Why? I don't know, but that that's what the like the theatrical release originally was like. And then there was Japanese and then the same thing in the top. That that would be hard for me. Because <laughs> I guess that and I guess the Japanese sub- subtitles were so big that most of the screen was covered by text. A lot of the movie. Mm. And I can see that being really difficult. It mm. wasn't like that when we were watching it. It was pretty it was pretty subdued and we didn't have Japanese subtitles. But I can see that being overwhelming. But uh, but this is meant to be an overwhelming film. Yes. And I have to say, again, with me being like social teachers, you should teach this um, because I'm like, this isn't an English language arts movie. Yeah, this isn't a film study movie. This is a like what. But I think this movie would be a great one to watch and talk about like the role of government. Yes. Um, And this came out in 2016 and we didn't see it till this week. But oh, my goodness, it felt so reflective of how I imagine conversations about COVID. Happened. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, oh my god, Jason. F- I'm gonna stop there. Flick and flick. You know, just uh, had to watch a lot of press conferences that I strongly disagreed with. Yeah, and felt frustrated by. I had to see too much of that guy. Now he's not there anymore. Anyway, Alberta politics. We'll we'll move on from that. Yeah. Um. I wish that we saw this in the theater. <laughs> well, I don't now that you told me that one thing, but prior to hearing that, I had wished that I had seen if, it in the theater. If it was this version and we saw it in the theater, I would be down. Yeah. Um. Also, I'll just say that the ending is chilling. Yeah. One of the best endings I think I've ever seen in anything ever. I rewatched it on YouTube a few times because I was like, well, a few times. Yeah. Because I was just like, damn, it, this is so effective. And. Yeah, it like I said, chilling. Like it just kind of sits with you before it cuts to credits. Um, and it's another thing from this week that's I've just kind of been thinking about and going back to in my head. It was pretty incredible. So while you were um while you were away and I was homesick, I watched the um new Suspiria, mm-hmm. which we've seen before. But that was one where I was like, I really wish we had seen this in the theater. 
That would have been such yeah. a spectacle. We intended to. It just never happened. I know. Sometimes. Yeah. It was before we were watching a movie a day, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That final shot. It's just. Yeah. How did Shin Godzilla make you feel? Thrilled at every turn. And it should be required in all social classes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how to make you feel? It made me feel like dizzied by the thickness of it. Like it's mm. so dense. And and also dizzied by that like ultimate failure of bureaucracy in times of human crisis that like the bureaucratic approach to things is so soulless. Yeah. And and so I just felt like overwhelmed by by that, but in a really like powerful reflective way wow when you say thickness is that thick with two c's oh yeah because godzilla is kind of thick in this oh yeah it's like babadook level thick <laughs> okay i picked one of the stupidest mystery movie picks i might have ever picked and i'm feeling pretty self-conscious about it i mean i didn't help because as soon as it came up i said really <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I feel like pre us com really committing to the mystery movie pick, this would have been one you're like, no. Um, but I chose the 1995 action adventure thriller Die Hard with a Vengeance. It's directed by John McTiernan, written by Jonathan Hansley and Roderick Thorpe. It's based on characters by Roderick Thorpe. He had no um, hand in the writing of this film. And again, IMDb, just not. I got this from IMDb. I guess I'm hitting the wrong button. <laughs> uh, it stars Bruce Willis as John McClane, Jeremy Irons as Simon, Samuel L. Jackson as Zeus. Man, Canadian legend. Graham Greene. Exhibit A, baby! <laughs> <laughs> as, jo as Joe Lambert. And uh, Larry Brigman as Arthur Cobb. The synopsis is John McClane and Harlem store owner are targeted by German terrorist Simon in New York City where he plans to rob the Federal Reserve Building. Wow, wow, wow. So this is, yeah, John McTernan. He's returning from Die Hard, from directing Die Hard 1. He didn't direct Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Um, yeah. What what'd you think of Die so, Hard with a Vengeance? <laughs> I, I was saving this to yell at you here, but then eventually I couldn't withhold it any longer. I didn't know that this was the third movie. <laughs> And I think it's absolute bullshit that you sent me to the third movie without watching the second one, even if the second one's bad, because I was so I was like, what absolute bullshit crap is this that like Die Hard one ends the way it does. And then all of a sudden he's like some bum down on his luck back in New York drunk all the time. And even though you say Die Hard 2 is bad, and I know I've never seen it, I'm assuming that there's enough in there to bridge the gap between Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 3 in terms of John McClane's characterization. I'm assuming there's some stuff that happens between him and Holly. But, like, not really. But you didn't even tell me. You didn't even. And then when I, when I got mad at you, you were like, well, it's called Die Hard with a Vengeance. And I'm like, how am I supposed to know that's not the second one? And that, that is my bad. Like... <laughs> We've done some weird stuff on this show where we've watched Indiana Jones 2 and 3. And yeah, but I knew when I watched them that they were Indiana Jones 2 and 3. And that's my bad for you not knowing that Die Hard 2 is Die Hard 2 and this is Die Hard 3. I'm a rule follower. <laughs> I don't watch things out of order. I'm not that wacky. Well, here's here's this was my rationale in my head that I didn't share with you prior to watching this was that 
Die Hard 1 is obviously the best in the Die Hard series. And then Die Hard 3 is usually the close second. And the rest are... Close? Well, in the... What's regarded by... Close. The the people at large. Okay, well, whatever. Don't show me the third movie in the series before you show me the second one. But... Because I I intend to show you no more Die Hard movies. Good. Because I don't want to watch any more Die Hard movies. Good. (laughs) Okay. Here's the thing, though. Yes, Did you hear that Toronto airport got robbed of its gold this week? No way. Yeah. (laughs) Man, how topical. (laughs) (laughs) Simon? Like, I think, like, gold bars and shit. Bullions. Yeah, like like this movie. That's fucking hilarious. Dired with a Vengeance happened in Canada? Let me, uh, gold heist. (laughs) The gold heist at Toronto Pearson needed insider knowledge, experts say. Hold on, though. There's gold at Toronto Pearson Airport? Yeah. The theft of over $20 million worth of gold and other valuables. Who the fuck is keeping their gold at the airport? Just for gold for... High value cargo. This uh, sociology and legal studies professor from the University of Waterloo said they knew what they were after and where to get it, and that involves having some sort of insider knowledge. It was not an opportunistic smash and grab. Inside job. Inside job. That's nuts. Yeah, so quite funny, because there's been a bunch of memes all over the internet with like stick figures and like gold bars, and I'm like, that just makes me think of this movie, which I thought was, honestly, I thought it was so dumb. But I guess it's happening in real life. So I was like, gold bars? Who's going for like, the bullions? Like, what do you even do with that? Who wants, like... like... I was thinking that, too. I was like, what do you do? Like, you, I mean, to get the money... You make a that, pyramid of gold bars in your house. But, like, okay, you have the gold bars that are worth millions of dollars. What... How, where do you go to exchange that? <laughs> and not be... Not have people be suspicious of you? Well... Let me tell you, I didn't really like this movie, and I think if you think too much about it, you'll like it even less. Let me tell you what I did like about this movie. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. I loved Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. Yeah. I think they could have just done a movie that wasn't called Die Hard that was just about Zeus, and I would have really liked it. If Spike Lee made a movie about Zeus, I would have really liked it. Now... Yeah, Spike Lee's Die Hard would have been much better. Well, I don't want it to be Die Hard. I just want it to be about this character. Because when this movie tried to get like political, it was like... Piss poor. It was really bad. It, like At one point, John McClane tells Zeus that he's racist because he judges white people. And I'm like, oh, man. They're, John McClane believes in reverse racism. <laughs> like, ugh. And like, even... I mean, I was obviously so bored by this movie because I like picked up my phone to check the score on the hockey game and then I missed the like sign that he was wearing. Mm-hmm. I didn't like that. I think that's not a white guy's movie to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know how I'd feel about it regardless, but like in the hands of a black filmmaker, I'm going to let them do what they want to do. But here I'm like, really? We're going to put that in a film? And it was like so minor to the overall plot that i'm like did we need that it was i feel like it was an attempt to make like this was our first thing with simon like asking john mcclain to do and it's just such a terrible despicable thing 
that it's meant to like paint Simon as such an evil person right off the bat. But I feel like because of the way that it plays out, I'm not even thinking about Simon while John McClane is doing this. No. And like everything else that he asks are like logic puzzles. Like, hey, have you taken the LSAT kind of thing? Yeah. And this is just that, like, well, do this fucked up thing. Yeah. And see, maybe you'll die. <laughs> like, yeah. I just also the whole Simon says part of it was like stupid. And then it like there was only like one time where he was like, I didn't say Simon says. <laughs> and then like they never really went back to it. Like, I just think it's a poorly written movie. Well, here's OK. So here's what I'll say. I loved this movie as a kid. I loved the first like, I heard. A dumb kid. Oh, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, that was meant to be joking, but it was kind of mean. Um, I loved this as a kid. I thought it was really fun. I too really like Samuel L. Jackson's character Zeus. Um, I liked him as a kid. I liked the banter between him and McLean for the most part. But rewatching this now, it, it 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 suffers from the John Wick three problem of it starts climbing up its own butt a bit. Yeah, I put the same thing in my notes. It's like where it like undoes a lot of the things I liked about the first movie. Yes. And for the record, I really liked Die Hard one. Yeah, it's great. But like, this was too long. It was too convoluted. It was too action-y. I also didn't feel the stakes. Like in Die Hard 1, like he's trying to save his wife. In this, I'm like, just bow out, John. Who cares? Like, like why Why do you care about this? But or like, like in Speed to... when it's like, oh man, everyone's going to blow up. Well, it's like he's trying to save his wife, but he's also trying to minimize the hostages getting killed like yeah but at the, the end of the day real stakes involved like yeah at the end of the day like john mcclain care, cares about innocent people dying and he's there to protect them in this one like i feel like he could give a shit and like and i never felt like there was nothing in the film so take speed where you have that like really horrifying elevator sequence to start with yeah and then you see an actual bus blow up and someone dies mm -hmm. you're like this guy means business he will kill people there was nothing in this movie that made me think that simon actually was going to hurt anybody well and it kind of goes so far as to like just it's show just like simon. there was a bomb he's in just, a briefcase yeah he's just he's just kind of like yeah i don't I, I, didn't I don't actually have plans to do this i just want to get my gold <laughs> yeah i just, he just he's basically just like a terrible human version of Lucky from Lucky Charms. <laughs> but like even like, yeah, yeah I know because I, I said this out loud so many times. I'm like, why did it take John so long to make the connection between this German guy and the Germans from the first movie? Yeah. Like how many Germans you hanging out with makes more sense to me now that I know it's the third movie. <laughs> yeah. Because like, was it Germans in the second one? good question but regardless there's more time has passed yes when i thought this was directly after the first one i'm like really bud you're not like oh by the way i like there's a bunch of germans at nakatomi plaza and i like right yeah like the fact and i don't even think it's him that eventually makes the connection yeah it's like somebody's like i'm like how dumb are you john so i found a quote from the filmmaker john mctiernan and he said the plot is quote frail and outrageous i hope people enjoy its ridiculousness so he was trying to be dumb and outrageous but it wasn't fun enough for me to be into that the way i am with john wick that's just it john wick is dumb and outrageous but it is at least really compelling this and stylish i, I really felt they have this extended sequence of just them 
loading up trucks with stuff. Yeah, I think and driving away. And it's like, I don't give a shit about this. Like, bring me back, like, give me more John McClane and Samuel L. Jackson together. I didn't need any of the Simon stuff. Like, I, I was kind of in, I was like not so hating the movie for like the first 45 minutes. Then I was like, this is long. I wish I was watching the Oilers. <laughs> oh, man. That's how you know it's bad. Yeah. Rather be watching sports. Yeah. Um, the, well, I will say, I think that other than the character of Zeus, fucking MVP is Graham Greene in this movie. There was not enough of him in it. No. Loved seeing him. And he does some badass shit that you, is awesome. You watch Exhibit A as a kid? Uh, <laughs> no. Oh, my God. We should. All right. Cool. Everybody. Watch Exhibit A. Unofficial Red Wreck Exhibit A. Yeah, it scared the piss out of me as a kid. I would watch Prices Right, and then I'd watch Exhibit A. It was on right after, and then I would be so scared. <laughs> and like, it was always in the summer, and I would just like, you know, just like empty house. Like my dad was home, but he was asleep upstairs, so it didn't really feel like he was home. And like, good luck even waking him up if there is a murderer. <clears throat> and you don't, you know that like just, I don't know. Was your house ever empty in the summer as a kid, or not really? Your mom was usually home. No, yeah, yeah. No, as I got older and I was like... Oh, but I wasn't old. <laughs> I was like six. When you were like in elementary school? Uh, No, somebody was usually there. Yeah, so you don't know. You don't know what it's like to be six years old. Just kidding. I wasn't six. I was probably like nine. To be nine years old, your sisters have left to go hang out with their teenage preteen friends. Your little brother's probably like playing Lego or some dumb shit in his room. Your dad's asleep <laughs> upstairs. You just watched... Exhibit A about a guy hiding in attics, peeing in jars. And you're like, what if there's a guy in my attic? And you get so scared, you can't even move off the couch. And it's so bright out. And you're like, I should just walk outside. And you're like, someone's going to murder me. You should bring it back. Reboot it. Exhibit B. But, but this was the thing is also it was Canadian. So it was like Canadian stories, which made it scarier because it was like, shit, that happened like. Yeah, it's like, in Canada. Oh man, Canadians are fucked too. Well, definitely. Um, I should. We should definitely put the, the intro, the like, theme song for Exhibit A. <laughs> sure. Because it's. I'm sure it's not actually scary, but it's scary to me. Yeah, but like some of that stuff still holds up. Like, oh god, the theme and intro to "Are You Afraid of the Dark" still slaps. Scary as hell. Anyway, not enough Graham Green in this. Yeah, I. Agree. And everyone should go watch Exhibit A instead of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah. The last thing I'll say about Die Hard with a Vengeance is that some elements of it work and that could have those elements could have led to a better movie, but they don't. Um, I guess John McTiernan just leads into the ridiculous and it's not a good ridiculous. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'll watch this again. I'll watch Die Hard one every Christmas. That's Maybe it. not anymore now on me. No. No, I will, but I'm very <laughs> salty about watching this. Um, Die Hard one's great. Just exclude everything else that comes after it in the Die Hard series. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel here for Samuel L. Jackson and not much else. Yeah. You? Bored and desiring of more. Yep. Yep. Okay. We went and saw a much anticipated one. One of the most anticipated of the year for me. All time. Whoa, whoa. Of the year. But like we've known about this for a while and it's been like I'm very excited for when Ari Aster makes his next film. So we went and saw Bo is Afraid, 2023 comedy drama, 
inherently horror. I get it. Directed and written by Ari Aster, starring Joaquin Phoenix as Bo, Patty Lapone and Zoe Lister as Mona, Amy Ryan as Grace, Nathan Lane as Roger, and Parker Posey as Elaine, and lots of fun cameos throughout as well. Fucking stacked cast. Absolutely. The synopsis, following the sudden death of his mother, a mild-mannered but anxiety-ridden man confronts his darkest fears as he embarks on an epic Kafka-esque odyssey back home. kafka And we indeed. know about Kafka. <laughs> we, we know a guy who fucks with Kafka. Yeah, if you have not listened to um, our episode about the trial, then you don't know that we got a whole lecture on Kafka. Um, we know all there is to know now. <laughs> what do you think of Bo is Afraid? Yeah. Like we said, one of the most anticipated movies of the year. We're big fans of Ari Aster's first two films, Hereditary and Midsommar. We revisit them frequently. And there's just something about his storytelling and his approach to horror slash discomfort slash unease slash fucked upness that just just hits us in all the spots that we like. And just from we just watched one of the trailers the first trailer that came out for this. And it just seemed like Ari Aster cranking it up to 11. Um, um, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, apparently this is A24's biggest project that they've backed. $35 million budget on this. And it's kind of nuts to think about because this movie is so, I feel like it's so kind of niche and weird that they won't see a return on that investment <laughs> necessarily. You think they knew that though? Yeah, I feel like that's A24's bag. Like, they've made two successful films with Ari Aster, and he had, like, this dream project that he wanted to make, and they're like, yeah, we'll help you make that. He did a um, Reddit AMA that I waited to read until after we saw it, and somebody asked him of his three films, which is he most proud of, and he said this one. So, you know, like, regardless of what everybody else thinks, this was the vision he had, and he executed it in a way that he's proud of, and he had the support of his production company to do so, and that's pretty cool. And I listened to the A24 podcast with him and uh, Joaquin Phoenix talking about this and the process. Like, it just seemed like, yeah, like he had a vision, and there's stuff he wanted to do, and, like, everybody kind of helped him do that. And, like, Joaquin Phoenix, well, I don't agree with some of the things that he did to commit to the part. Um what did he do? Well, there's like uh, the character of Bo sustains some injuries. This is one example uh, throughout the film. So like he kept forgetting that he's supposed to act injured. So he would like um, like he he has an injury on his hand. So he would put like tacks oh. inside of his hand so that like they would constantly be hurting him. So he'd remember to or like he has a uh, a wound on his side that he kept forgetting about. So he took like like a clip with uh, like the rough side of Velcro and oh. like clipped it onto him for most of the scene so that it would hurt. And I'm like, that's kind of intense. But Did he gain weight for the role? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he gained weight or if like that's just what his body weight is. Because um, he's definitely in the shots I've seen of him in the second Joker movie. He's gone back to like Joker weight. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I feel about that either. Actors like gaining or losing a bunch, like radically changing their physique for a film. Yeah. Um, Including like gaining muscle, I think is sometimes a little really intense. What I'll say about Bo is Afraid though, that this is a wild ride that has stuck with me and that I've been reflecting on since I've seen it. I so badly want, wanted and continue to want this movie to be a five out of five for me. And it, it, it just can't quite get there. Mm hmm. 
I, I feel that way about Hereditary too. Yeah, like I've re- through reflecting on it since we've seen it, I feel like it's it hasn't ascended higher to four at this point in time for me. A four out of five, but I don't know. Maybe maybe seeing it again could help help with that. There's just like an there's like an um, that emotional thing we've talked about that like brings things to a four and a half or to yeah. a five that it just it so wanted to get there but it didn't quite get there for you for me yeah there's exactly. lots of people who have felt a deep emotional connection to this right and that's great and I think you have a very different relationship with your mother than Bo does yes I feel like you are a couple life differences away from having the same relationship to your mother as Bo has with his mm-hmm but you're different than him and your mother's a little bit different than his mother. And mm-hmm. I think I had a little bit more of an emotional connection to the relationship with his mother than you do. Yeah. Cause I think my relationship with my mother is a little bit more akin to what's going on there. And there was a couple moments um, with Patty Lapone in particular where I was like, Oh, this really hurts. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, But I know like when we watched hereditary the first time and we had a really bad theater experience when we did, we were very excited for it. That was his first film. We knew nothing about him. We just wanted to see the movie. Mm-hmm. The more I've watched Hereditary, the more I like and appreciate it, but it still hasn't hit a five out of five for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling that I'll like this movie more on rewatches I and agree. it might get to like a 4.5. Yeah. But I think it's rare that a movie hasn't hit a five for me the first time I watch it or in the like, hours and days after I watched it where, you know, like possession, I changed from a 4.5 to a five within a day of watching it. Cause I just couldn't get it out of my head. Yeah. And that's what I'm struggling. I don't know. Struggling is an intense word for this, but like, that's where I'm at with this movie It's like, I want to bump it up to the 4.5 out of five. So this movie is a lot more metaphorical mm-hmm. than his. I mean, all of his movies have a degree of metaphor in them, but this one is so, like what is reality is basically impossible to determine at any given time. Yeah. Well, it's done really well because I feel the the whole movie is from Bo's point of view. Yes. Um, and he's an unreliable narrator. Yes. Like there's some, there's some moments like there's a moment in this with a police officer where it's really intense and it's, it's, it's getting dialed up, but that's just Bo's reality. Cause yeah. he's like somebody that has a lot of anxiety about yeah. the world where it could be far less than that. Yeah. It could be just like, and that's the lens I watched this movie through that. Like everything that happens didn't necessarily happen the way that it's depicted. Yeah. Yeah. That like, there's like early on in the film, there's like a dead body that's been on the street for dates and days. And I'm like, that's not real. Mm-hmm. That's how he feels. Yeah. That's what he like, are these things that happen? And I'm like, that didn't happen, but that's what he thinks is happening. And I liked that. And I'm curious if knowing where it's going would diminish the film on a second watch or enhance it because I was very compelled Mm -hmm. and I was very like, I want to know what's going to happen next. And it goes through several, it's very much got an act structure to Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I will say Ari Aster, despite the fact that this is much more of a comedy, Mm -hmm. there is some deeply disturbing imagery and some horrifying sequences in this. Yeah, while he dabbles in the fantastical, um, there is the Ari Aster signature unease, dread, 
disturbing imagery that heightened violence yeah sex yeah yes disturbing sex stuff yes like take that scene in midsummer and amp it up to like a thousand yes um but yeah like and i saw i mean you, you already you already name dropped it but like i saw threads of like possession in this yeah um but like both vibe wise and also just like some visual references that i felt were visual references um yeah, I I agree like rewatching this a second time. How do you feel about the 3-hour runtime? I think we need to bring intermissions back. Mm. Cuz well for one thing I think that the volume in our theater wasn't as loud as it was supposed to be and it was a very rustly theater. We saw it on like the Thursday advanced screening show. So everybody who was there knew what they were getting into and the theater was like quite respectful. Talking wise. Talking wise. But there was some rustling. And, and there was bzz, a lot yeah. of the seats. And a lot of getting up to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people are like, I have to go pee and it's a three hour movie, so I might as well just go. But if you knew there was going to be an intermission at the halfway point, might you not just hold it? Save the piss. Yeah. Right? Like, because that was a little distracting. So I think if a movie is like over two and a half hours long, we need to bring back an intermission. That is such... I really like that thinking. I hadn't even considered that. And like now that there is this very obvious trend that movies coming out, like movies, big budget movies are just three hours now. Yeah. The Batman, Babylon, Avatar Way of Water, Bo is Afraid. And movies like that used to have intermissions. Yeah. I remember seeing Titanic in the theater and there was an intermission. Um, And if a a director is like, well, I don't want to put an intermission into my movie. Well, then I guess it can't be three hours long. I, I like that idea a lot. Think about going to see a play. And at particular places, if you leave before intermission at a play, you don't get in. to get, yeah, you don't get to come back in. Yeah. So, which is, you know, going back to what we talked to at the beginning of the show with the Alamo Draft House having that you can't walk in late. If you decide to leave before intermission, you don't get to come back in. Now, I think if a person, there's some ways which rules like this can be very ableist. And so I think there should be some flexibility in those policies if like a person needs them, mm-hmm. right? Like if there's a person who has um, like irritable bowel syndrome or something, they they should there should be some well, ways to get around that. But I, I feel like the a, a simple quote unquote simple way to do that is on your ticket that you get that like when you purchase a ticket, you purchase like a special needs ticket or something that has like an icon or it says that on there so that when you show your ticket when you're coming back like then yeah you're the, the person would know we really should be the people who make Fuck, these you policies know, kylie i actually i know re- i really really love that idea like and just because i've had so many thoughts and feelings about the trend of three hour most movies coming out now being three hours and i don't see it being a trend that's slowing down anytime soon i'm so here for intermissions again well, i was reading some stuff on reddit with people saying they wished that Bo was afraid had an intermission and they were like how fun would it be for like you know everyone leaves the theater and goes to the bathroom and gets more snacks which is good for the theater and they're chatting they're like what the yes f- what exactly the and that's what it talked about that like excitement of like what have you already seen now i understand from a director standpoint maybe you don't want that you want just this you want that and, and considering un- uh, Bo's yeah. afraid is this like tightening string so i don't know it's it's complicated but well yeah i don't know i i just love that so much 
I have some funny things. Go on. Did you notice in our theater how many people had online ceramics shirts on? <laughs> no, I Including didn't. Including us? Me. Yeah, I might have been wearing my pearl shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I th- yeah, it was wild. Um, also, as we were leaving the theater, I don't know if you heard this, but I heard someone saying to like the person they went with, you hadn't seen Hereditary or Midsommar? <laughs> and I'm like, what? This is your first Ari Aster movie? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. Um, also, have you heard how Ari Aster describes this film? No. He describes it, quote, if you pumped a 10-year-old full of Zoloft and had him get your groceries. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I also saw a tweet that I really, really liked um, where somebody said, this makes uncut gems look like the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> so all That's really good. fun. Um, but here's the best thing I have to say. Hmm. So... On the Reddit AMA that Ari Aster did a couple days ago um, that I looked at after we watched the movie, someone asked him if he'd ever be interested in like remaking or adapting a property. And he said that he seriously wants to make a movie out of the board game Don't Wake Daddy. Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The 90s kid in me just had a fucking orgasm. (laughs) Don't Wake Daddy by Ari Aster. Can you imagine Oh. It would be horrifying. I love that. Like my mind kind of went to um don't breathe. Yeah. Like but like mine goes babadook. But yeah, just like this really dark sinister there like these people are trapped in this house or in this house and Skin Emmerich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's just it's really creepy. Like and we don't know what daddy looks like. But you don't want to fuck with daddy. <laughs> so you are are you all in on him making a don't wake daddy movie? I'll go see everything Ari Aster does unless he turns into a pee-pee-poo-poo person. Um, That's great. So you said you've been thinking about this more and more. Yes. Are you liking it more and more the more you think about it? Yes. There, I, There's nothing really bringing it down for me. Um, it's just getting enhanced the more you think about it. It is. The more you read about it. And like, I, I wish the audience was a little bit more chill as soon as the movie ended because the end credit sequence much like uh, Shin Godzilla actually the end sequence of the movie just like has really stuck with me and I thought it was really impactful and really powerful I want to see this again I might want to see it again in the theater yeah I think right after we watched it I was like I don't know it's a lot it's really yeah taxing yeah it's three hours of that, yeah, but I have very I have experience. been thinking of parts of it, and and I do think I'd like to see it again. And yeah. I've read some stuff about the end sequence that like I didn't notice. You have to tell me about yeah, that. yeah okay. that um I actually think is quite brilliant. Okay, and I and I think that's pretty cool. Um, do you know where this was shot? No, our favorite city, baby, Montreal. That's gorgeous. Yeah, you can go to Montreal and see his apartment. Um, next next time we go there. We'll yeah, to, we'll have to go check it out. So I was like, "Oh, incredible! Okay, I love Montreal. That's kind of cool." Oh, wee wee. Um, uh, last thing I'll say about this is that this movie is gorgeous in in all its beauty and disgustingness. It's captured oh, yeah. so well. Like the camera work in this, a lot of like really great panning shots. Um, a, a very notable shot at the beginning of the movie. It's just one long take 
take of Bo on the phone with his mom. And it's just like this push. Oh. It's just like really weird. Ground, it's really good. Ground level push in to like going up into Bo's face. And it's just it's so it's executed so well. Very smart cuts throughout the film. And there's this animated sequence that's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It reminds me a little bit of like the Deathly Hollow story in Harry Potter 7. Yeah. But better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, um, did yeah. you like Walking Phoenix in it? I did. Um, I've I've kind of been hearing a lot of like critiques of his character and like how unlikable or how likable he is. And I, I, I thought he was a really good I thought he was a really good conduit into like this this lens of seeing the world through an anxious person or somebody that is struggling with mental health or is you know like he's not necessarily the best person and I don't know if I necessarily empathize with him. Well this movie but it's is complicated. It's it, such a first person movie. Yeah. Like we never have an objective point of view. There's a novel that I have taught my grade 12 students in the past where similar kind of thing uh, really unreliable narrator really unlikable character and the students just hate him and I say at a certain point I wait and I say you do realize why you hate him right and they say no and I say because he hates himself mm -hmm. and it's a first person narration I think that's the same thing in this movie I think Bo hates himself so of course yeah. we're gonna struggle to feel sorry for him when he finds himself pathetic Mm -hmm. He finds himself too much. He finds himself a failure. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think he deeply hates himself. Mm -hmm. And so that self-loathing is reflected back onto us. And, and I mean, nobody really wants to feel that for three hours. So. Yeah. You know. But like that. And another thing I'll say is that. There's a lot of shit in this movie that's fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah. But like darkly hilarious oh yeah and i think that ari aster has such a good handle on dark humor yeah um and it's on the exhibit here there's stuff in hered or not in hereditary in um midsommar that i think is really funny yeah i think he wants you to be like am i allowed to laugh you're evaluating why you're laughing if, yeah or if it's okay that you're laughing yeah 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 because like there was moments in this movie where like the whole theater erupted with laughter and I think like, and not in a mean spirited way, like I've heard of people in that like one scene in Midsommar laughing and I'm like, this is so stupid. And I think Ari Aster's often like, he actually is giving you permission to laugh and then you think he's not. So you're laughing at it. And I'm like, actually, I think his craft is stronger than that. And he actually meant for this to be funny. And that, and I, I so appreciate that because I feel like, I feel like it's really easy or I don't know, I don't want to paint this with broad brush, but I feel like there's so many directors like Ari Aster that could just take it, quote unquote, so seriously and there's no humor and people shouldn't find humor in what they're doing. But he has, he clearly has a good comedic voice mm -hmm. that ties in with his tendency towards horror and discomfort and, dist and being disturbing. And he just has such a control over that. And it uh, totally works for me. I love I love it so much. Yeah, it's wild. Also, I've like the more I watch Parker Posey, the more I think I'm in love with her. <laughs> yeah. So she was great in this. Um, really strong acting all around. Yeah. Yeah. Freaking Amy Ryan, Nathan Lane. Incredible. Um, yeah. 
How did Bo's Afraid make you feel? Swept up in the dazzling discomfort. Wow, look at that alliteration. I know, right? I, I was pretty proud of that one. I like it. Thank you. How did it make you feel? It made me compelled, discomforted, and left with a spinning head. <laughs> yes. So we were supposed to go see the new Kelly Reichardt movie, and then I was sick, and we should stay home when we're sick, so we didn't go. Um, and I just knew. I knew what movie I wanted to watch. I knew what movie would make me feel good. So I picked Saw. Yes. 2004 horror mystery thriller directed by James Wan, written by Lee Whannell, starring, how do you say his name? Carrie Elwes. Carrie Elwes as Dr. Lawrence Gordon. Lee Whannell as Adam. Danny Glover as Detective David Tapp and Ken Long as Detective Steven Singh. Synopsis, two strangers awaken in a room with no recollection of how they got there and soon discover their pawns in a deadly game perpetrated by a notorious serial killer. As soon as I pressed play, you knew what it was. Yeah. That like green cloud lightning. Yeah. The... And then the twisted pictures shows up. <laughs> yeah. You knew. Um, what did you think of Saw? You and I love this movie. We loved this movie independently of each other. And that's really special. And then our love has just coalesced. You think we've watched it quite a few times together? I do. Yeah. This next to the Green Mile, I feel like this is the movie that we quote the most with each other. <laughs> We say, I promise. I promise. A lot. Um, and you even said, like, there were lines that when they came up when we were watching this, you're like, I said this in high school all the time. Oh, it was more of the, like, yeah, that this is the most fun I've had without lubricant. <laughs> like, some of the, like, dumb, salacious stuff. I, like, yeah. yeah. I think I had many Facebook statuses that were like, let's get some peanut butter and have a 10-person gangbang. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, um but yeah, we do we do quote this a lot. I wanted to share kind of my history with seeing it for the first time. Yeah, I, I realized I don't know if I know it. So I rented this on my own from Blockbuster Video Headquarters, one of them, because I, I, I mean the cover looked fucked. <laughs> I had heard that it was kind of fucked, um, and I brought it home and I actually watched it for the first time with my dad what um so like my dad he never really my dad's a putterer like he would always want to be out in the garage or out in the yard doing his own thing like he liked to be busy doing and if he stuff was in the living room he's usually sleeping yes um but like didn't he, he hate it though well we sat down to watch it and he like i didn't invite him or anything he's just like what are you watching i'm like rent this fucked up movie <laughs> He's like, all right, all right. We watched, so we watched it together, and I just remember it got to the end, and like the ending in this movie is one of my favorite endings of any movie of all time. Yeah, got a lot of good endings this week. Yeah. That was like the theme. Um, it blew his mind. Oh, he liked the ending. He really liked. He okay. like, and like he would years at, later, he'd be like, oh man, that movie sucked. <laughs> but I thought when you and I we went through a stage when we had just started dating. But we're still living at home where we were watching all of the saws together. Mm -hmm. And I remember your dad coming in and being like, these movies are disgusting. Yeah, I, I think he didn't like the subsequent ones. Well, but the f I mean, well, I'm glad he didn't like poo poo on it. No, I remember like he really he really liked it. So, yeah, that was. Do you know what grade you were in? Like, was it in 2004? 
Yeah, like whenever it first came out on DVD. So, so grade nine. 2004, 2005. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? So my history with horror movies is so interesting to me because they did really scare me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad loved horror movies and he was showing me like The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, and sorry to interrupt, but like even earlier in our relationship when you and I would like I, I remember us going to see The Conjuring in the theater. And me being scared. And like you bringing your feet up off the floor yeah, yeah. <laughs> and putting them on the well, seat. Yeah, my dad took me to Gothica. He took me to The Others. So there was a lot of like my dad introducing me to classic horror. And I know I put this in my letterbox review, but it's a true story that I was. I don't know, 12 or 13. And my dad was showing me the exorcist for the first time. And my dad, my mom and him had split up. So I was at his house and I think my brother hadn't come over that weekend. So it was like just me and him. Um, and I wasn't super, I must've been 12. Cause I don't think I had stayed at his house a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was convinced I heard a noise and I made him pause the movie and search the house with a knife, <laughs> which he would do. I, you know, bless my dad's heart. Cause if I said, I think someone's in the house, he would go around with a knife looking. Um, so I, and I liked it, but it really scared me in the moment. And I was often very scared after too, like very scared of the movies I watched. And so much of them were tied up in like watching them with my dad. Right. Or even like, you know, my sister showed me scream this and the ring are the first two that I really remember, like choosing to watch on my own and Mm. really getting something out of it. And I think they kind of like kickstarted my like my own relationship with horror and not just tied to like watching horror movies with my dad, mm-hmm. like my own exploration of horror. And then even past that, like I'm at a point now where things don't really scare me. Mm. <laughs> and if they do, like it's kind of special. <laughs> yeah. Because I've seen so many. You've never asked me to grab a knife and walk around the house after watching well, a horror movie. I have asked you to go check the house when I hear it. You won't do it. So. But unarmed. I don't think I asked my dad to get the knife. I think he just did. (laughs) So what I remember about this movie is I know I was in grade nine and I know my dad saw it in the theater. Mm. Cool guy. Yeah. And I know he told me it blew his mind. (laughs) Just saw blowing dad's minds. But I'm pretty sure we weren't allowed to see it in the theater. Like you had to be 18 or older. Oh, it was like an R rated. Yeah. So I think like I couldn't go and see it. Right. Because I'm pretty sure uh, subsequent one, ones were like that too, but I like snuck, like I paid for a different movie in LeDuc and then snuck into them. Classic. But hey, at the time. I, I my, did that with Sin City. Just to bring it back. <laughs> my dad was not willing to take me to this because of that. Right. So when it came out to rent, I was like, man, I'm watching it. Dad said it was good. So there is still a connection to my dad there, but we didn't watch it together. I don't know who I watched it with. Could have been by myself. Might have been with like, I don't know, with somebody I do remember watching it in the basement of like the house I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And I do remember like the ending blowing my fucking mind. Do you still think of it as like one of the best endings to anything? Yeah. Like (laughs) it's one of my like, you know, when they say what movie do you wish you could watch again for the first time? This is one of them. Because it blew my mind. And then like, this is why I can't even remember who I watched it with because I made so many people watch it. (laughs) Yeah. Because I wanted to see their reaction to the ending. I'd just be like, oh, yeah. Like, it's just, and the music, do, 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 do. Oh, it's so good. Do you know what that song's called? Hello, Zep. I. That's so funny because it's, it's, it is 
what I think people just refer to as the Saw music. <laughs> but it's in all of the Saw movies. In the original soundtrack, that's what it was called. I love it. Um, so, yeah, it's like this movie is just such an essential part of my history of loving horror films. Now, I think if I were to watch it for the first time now, having never seen it, I think I'd be really Twin Peaks affected by it. Where I'm mm -hmm. like, ah, I've seen this done better. Right. But this was revolutionary for its time. Yeah. Like, it's this low-budget product of its time that works so well, unlike many of the things that came out around this time. And I feel like it trailblazed a lot of the stuff that came out after this. And you know, it gets unfairly lumped in with torture porn, but it's, like, shockingly not graphic. Like it's graphic in idea. Yes. But you don't really see a lot. Obviously, the grossest thing is like when Adam sticks his hand into a toilet full of poop. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like this one is often regarded as super gory. Like, people are like, oh, I can't watch that. I can't watch it. It's just like, it's so gory. There's nothing gory in it. And really. like, the subsequent entries for sure are. They, it, but like, this is low budget. So, as much as they can get away with not showing on camera, or they do showing just the littlest amount of stuff and just relying on the audience's imagination they take those opportunities a because they have to but b because it's more effective it's like jaws you don't have to show the shark for it to be terrifying and i love the the closed circuit element of like the two of them chained to these pipes in a disgusting bathroom together do you want to talk about our ideas about that yes <laughs> Go for we it. want to make a two-man show of it. Two-man plus maybe two other men, couple, but mostly us. Couple spares. Yeah. We we would we talk about this all the time. And while we were watching it, I'm just thinking the whole time of how we could execute this. Like we want to make a stage play where we play Lawrence and Adam, and it's all just from their perspective being chained to the pipes in the bathroom, and we don't cut away from that. I think it'd be awesome. I feel like it would attract a very niche group of people, but I think tourist destination, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Speaking of, I found this out. There is a official thaw saw themed escape room in Las Vegas. That is like multiple rooms. You're like in Jigsaw's factory, and you have to get through multiple rooms, and it's like like officially made by like saw so it's kind of like saw five ish yeah i think so but i think it's got references like i looked at some pictures and there is one point where like you're in the bathroom from the first film awesome and it's got like very good reviews nice vegas vegas nice so we have three friends who desperately want us to go to vegas this is their ticket to making us go yeah if you want to book a private like this is what I read on the reviews is like you want to do it privately, but you need at least four people for them to allow you to do private bookings. So they need to come with us. I need five reasons to go to Vegas. I think Omega Mart saw escape room. Give us three more people to make going to Vegas. Play your sister's palace game in real life. <laughs> just reenact it. White shirt, black pants. Just walk around. <laughs> um, but wouldn't you love to do that? It would be pretty cool. Yeah. I feel like I just get lost in all the references. <laughs> yeah. In the best way. Yeah. Um, 
rewatching Saw this time, something I really was picking up on and seeing that I thought was really cool is seeing the groundwork because this is Lee, Lee Winnell and uh, James Wan's first film. Seeing the groundwork being laid for The Conjuring, Insidious, and even Malignant. Malignant. Some of the silliness. Yeah. It's there. Like, I, I think they know they're being a little silly at times. Yeah. Like, some of it's corny, some of it's hammy, but it still works. There was parts of this, though, that, like, the um, camera flash scene scared the absolute piss out of me when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. There's even this moment where we just, like, linger on darkness. And I'm like, this always scared the shit out of me. Hello, Dr. Gordon. <laughs> do you yeah. want to play a game? Yeah, like this, it became so iconic. Like the, do you want to play a game? The jigsaw puppet. Like, Some people are so ungrateful to be alive. <laughs> but not you. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> we do, we, yeah, we quote this movie a lot. <laughs> yeah. I just, it brings me such absolute joy. I can't even explain it. Oh, man. We'll get to show it to our niece one day. So I was thinking when we were watching it, there's some good security camera stuff oh, in it. Oh, yeah. I'm like, we just need to make a letterbox list of movies with security cameras in them so we can, like, <laughs> show them to movies her. Movies with security cameras my niece will like when she's older. Yeah. <laughs> That's the name of the list. <laughs> I did. My students were telling me, because I, I guess I had never told my creative writing class about how she's obsessed with security cameras, which is wild. But I think it's because it was more prominent first semester than it was second semester. So I haven't told as many of my second semester students. Um, and I guess that game Fr five nights at Freddy's starts with like, you are a security camera, like surveillance guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's were, all about security. Yeah. Cameras. They were like, she would love that game. But yeah. I don't really know anything about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know, I know a bit about it, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, the whole thing is about managing security cameras and, Trying not to get killed. Oh well. Yeah, I'll we'll look up a bit afterwards because yeah, that's great. We just have to make sure that we time things right to not turn her off of horror or security like, cameras. Correct. <laughs> so we have to kind of like let her lead the charge of like when she's ready for this stuff. But yeah, yeah, one day we're gonna get to show her saw. Her mom won't watch it with her. Her dad won't watch it with her. So it's gonna be us. I'm so excited. I am really excited to have a young person that right now she's exhibiting the tendencies to really like movies and be a huge oh, yeah, movie she, fan. I have to tell this story. So she's, she loves watching movies right now. She's four years old. The other night she's watching a movie before bed. It ends and she asks her mom if she can watch another one. And my sister says no. And she says, if I had a kid, I'd let them watch two movies before bed. <laughs> parenting advice <laughs> that's great <laughs> but i'm like just the fact that she wants to watch two movies before bed of course like we have two older nibblings who it's not like they dislike movies but they didn't like them like that yeah where it's like i i want to just like watch movie after movie after movie see that's where we come in like if she comes over and it's just like can we watch another one it's like yeah of course saw perhaps <laughs> um yeah I, that's great. I'm so excited. I really hope that this pans out the way that I want it to. <laughs> um, kind of nuts that there's some heavy hitters for for this one between Carrie Elvis and Danny Glover. Yeah. For like such a seemingly low budge kind of movie. Well, and I guess um, 
this is kind of a cute story. They asked James Wan who he wanted to play Amanda. And he was like, Shawnee Smith, because he had like a crush on her since he was 13. And then they got her. Incredible. Like he just like kind of said it as like a lark. I love that. Um, What's interesting to me about Saw is that we haven't kept up with them the way we have with like Scream. I mean, I've seen all of them. Oh, sure? almost, almost all of them. I, I think I've seen all of them except for 3D or did we see 3D? We saw 3D. So we haven't seen Final Chapter or Spiral. I've seen, because I, I think Final Chapter is the 3D one. Mm-mm. No? No, there's Saw 3D and then there's Saw Final Chapter. I can't remember what happens in all of them. I may or may not have seen the last one, but I definitely haven't seen Spiral. I thought the last one we watched was the one with like the company. Because all the people from like a company. Mm. I can't remember. It was long ago. They get... They, they get ridiculous and like uh, yeah we haven't seen jigsaw and but in the subsequent you're right ones, saw 3d is the last one but in some and in, in most of the subsequent films and even in in this one in the first saw movie i there there are some hard critiques and stances that i have on the fairness of some of the jigsaw traps even in this one that's what i'm saying yeah yeah like <laughs> and it's so funny like you and I are like mm, I don't know about this like this the odds seem pretty stacked against this person but I love that we argue the fairness of jigsaw death traps <laughs> maybe we have seen saw 3d I'm pretty sure we did because it has like stupid 3d stuff in it yeah but we haven't seen jigsaw and we haven't seen spiral Hurts to by- be fair jigsaw came out seven years after saw 3d so. All right, Jigsaw. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing is. There's Saw 10 coming out. Here's the thing is like, I don't love this series the way that I love like a scream. Yeah. <laughs> I'm listening to you. <laughs> um, like, I, and I, I'm trying to think of what kept me coming back to the series. Like, I feel like at a point, it's just like, what fucked up thing is going to happen next? And the story. I like the game part of it. Yeah. It's just like, what's the what's the thing that gets all these people into a situation that they need to work through or whatever? Yeah. Like, honestly, they're like escape rooms. Yeah. Like, you have to solve the puzzle to try and escape. And then you think about what you what would you do? Like, quite honestly, this first Saw movie, especially the stuff with Gordon and Adam you turn off the lights to find a glow in the dark area. Does this key work here? Does it work somewhere else? Like it's just yeah. escape room 101. Crypt- cryptic word puzzles. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe it's that part of it. But Jigsaw would have been really good at escape rooms. Oh, yeah. He would have been like, I could design better. <laughs> Three out of five. Yeah. Some people are so ungrateful to make their games, but not you. <laughs> not anymore. This was the uh, closing TIFF film the year it came out. Oh, really? What a closing film. That's cool. I feel like it would amp you up. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's great. I agree. How does Saw make you feel? Always happy to revisit this horror staple. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel just like an unbridled glee at my early horror-loving origins. Mm, nice. Well said. Ready for some bad dads and rad dads? Yeah, let's name some dads of the week. 
who is your bad dad nominee of the week? Okay. I actually found this week kind of hard. Me too. Um, but I think I I think I'm in a good spot. Okay. I picked Jigsaw. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good that's a very good pick. Um, so without like talking too much about who Jigsaw is within the first film, if you've never seen it, holy shit, go and see it. Yeah. But like you can't shame people into being better. <laughs> like, you can't threaten their likes like that's his into whole being ethos better. is like the some people are so ungrateful to be alive right like but i don't i don't think that works in the long run i think it might work temporarily yeah but like you can't just like trick and manipulate people into being better yeah and imagine that as a parent i mean that basically is like Bo's mom this like this guilt and this like lying and games to try and make you see the world a different way. Yeah. It's pretty bad dad energy. Oh yeah, big time. He's um, a real creep. <laughs> yes. No, I, I like that argument. I I I stuck very, very close to Jigsaw and I said Lawrence, aka Larry. I I started I started with that and I deleted it. So try and convince me. I mean, bum, 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 the ultimate bad dad formula, selfish. Um, you don't think Jigsaw's selfish or do you think it's selfless to try and help people? <laughs> yeah. Jigsaw's a real, he should be rad dad. Yeah. Jigsaw is the ultimate selfless person. <laughs> He's just trying to make society better. Um, I, Larry's just got fucking doink energy. He's just such a dingus. He's distant from the people that he loves and he he's very non-communicative with them about his needs thoughts feelings um and he's disloyal (laughs) (laughs) you're supposed to be my love partner (laughs) yeah he's like he's just somebody i would never want as a dad at least jigsaw would want to help me self-improve but i feel like so this is where i ended up deleting larry is I feel like he the film as much as it can be is part of his story arc is like learning to be grateful for his family and like that's even mimicked in his relationship with Adam getting to the point of the I promise right like I feel like he's even in some of the early scenes with his daughter like he's trying to be present but he's failing at it and I think when he's put in this situation, I think Jigsaw actually accomplishes what he set out to accomplish, which is to make him realize his his wife and his daughter are what matter. And he feels pretty guilty about it. And so that's where I'm like, I don't... Do we shame someone for trying to be better? It's just like, is he trying to be better? Or just through Jigsaw, like, he's forced to be better. I guess that just helps the Jigsaw argument. Yeah, because you can't shame someone into being better. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that <laughs> I think the the manipulation that Jigsaw throws out there. Not good. Selfless or not. <laughs> I also think like there's many opportunities where Dr. Gordon could do some very selfish things in the situation with Adam. And he comes up with some pretty clever ways to try and get around that that don't work, which are in service to Adam, not to him. Right. So, yeah. All right. You convinced me. Jigsaw. Don't be our dad. dad. Go away. (laughs) 
Evans. Some people are so ungrateful to not have dads, but not you. <laughs> not anymore. Okay. Rad dad, who'd you pick? Um, I, I, I feel like, okay. So <laughs> my rad dad pick was the rancher from certain women. All right. And I don't know if it's just because I really loved Lily Gladstone's performance and because I related with that character, but I appreciated why... I appreciated that the rancher was quietly thoughtful, seemed like a very caring, sweet person, mm. considerate. And I had I had self-motivated, but I feel like that was that that wasn't always necessarily the case. And I, I think that it's <laughs> I'm kind of like really losing the argument in saying, like, I think that there's maybe not enough for this character to like really I don't think she's a rad dad. I'm so sorry. Flesh her out enough. She doesn't. She doesn't actually name what she wants, and then she shows up at a place expecting to like. I don't know. Yeah, it's that's an odd. I know it's iffy. I just really liked her. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Who's your pick? I pick Yaguchi from Shin Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Um, he sticks to his guns within a difficult system, which like parenting isn't a difficult system. I don't know what is, Mm. and. In that finds like my like-minded people to both mentor and to learn from. Mm. Um, despite like him just increasingly getting higher positions and having more power, he never talks down to other people or acts superior. He's about working together to make things the best they can be for others, not mm. for himself. And throughout the film, he keeps the people of Tokyo as his central focus. And not like what it means to the government or what it means to himself or what it means for long ranging foreign policy. It's like, what does it mean for the people who live in this place and what I owe to them? And like, he's just to me such an admirable character and like the way he, he acts in, in times of leadership, as especially in, in contrast to so many of the other characters, I just think is awesome. And if you like use that as a metaphor for parenting. Hey, babes, guess what? You just swept the week. Woo! <laughs> yeah, I think that. And this is why I was like, do you do, do not say that Shin Godzilla has thin characterization when I'm going to name him as my rad dad? No, I've, I'm definitely, uh, I'm the one with egg on my face when it comes to that. <laughs> <laughs> Splat. <laughs> All right. Higuchi. Be our Be dad. dad. Excellent. Hot off the heels of watching one of the ultimate horror movies saw the rad wreck of the week is a another in a long series of horror survival horror video games the rad wreck is resident evil 4 remake um i know that i rad wreck a lot of video games because i'm a big dork that loves a fun video game experience. big gamer big gamer energy um i I am a sucker for the Resident Evil series. I know like the story, the stories are like pretty pee pee poo poo. Like they're not great, but they are fun games. They have some good scares. They have some really fun game mechanics that can be really stressful. Um, and Resident Evil 4 is the original is regarded as one of the best video games. It was one of the first of its kind of the over the shoulder uh, third person shooter games, which led to such great games as The Last of Us. And they just remade Resident Evil 4 and updated it to current gaming standards 
and I played through the whole thing. It's fun as hell. So if you if you like ridiculous <laughs> infection stories and just blazing through them with guns that you upgrade and treasures that you sell to buy more upgrades and stuff, just like my little ADHD brain just gets so much enjoyment out of all of just looting for stuff to make more money to upgrade my guns. It, it's just, <laughs> looting for stuff to upgrade your guns. I, I love it so much. And I mean, again, like this is a direct link to getting us to something like The Last of Us. And I'm so grateful for those games. But this Resident Evil 4 remake is fun as hell. If you have the means to check it out, I know games are super expensive and systems are also super expensive. It's super fun. So if you need your brain scratched in the same way that I've just described, check it out. Rad Wreck of the Week. Thank you so much for listening. This was very fun. I loved the conversation we had today. Um, we can You can check out a new conversation every Thursday. Uh, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can also get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. But that's going to do it for these certain women this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.